Second Thessalonians chapter two, beginning in verse one, it says, now, brethren, that's you and cisterns. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. For those of you who have been following along in First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians, the church at Thessalonica was under intense persecution. And in that intense persecution, Christians were already being driven underground and many had already lost their life. And apparently enough believers were convinced that the rapture had already taken place and that the day of the Lord or the great tribulation had already come and was upon the world. And so Paul began this letter with a series of encouragements. He reminded us that suffering helps us. Grow in verses three through five in the first chapter and that suffering prepares us for glory in verses six through ten and that suffering glorifies the Lord Jesus and serves as an example and an opportunity for our growth. And then we discovered something else. In a series of startling revelations, Paul will remind the leader that. Or the reader and, and the believer that a progression of events have to take place. An apostasy in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. A satanic man of sin who will be revealed in verses 3 through 9. A temple must be built in verses 4 and 5. A restrainer must be removed in verses 6 through 12. And then an unfinished church must come to a full and final fruition in verses 13 through 17. And so broadly, the theme of encouragement covers chapter one. Broadly, the theme of enlightenment covers chapter two. And then Paul will conclude the letter with a series of absolute priorities. And that is to establish the saints in their personal walk in Christian living in chapter three. In the 2000 years since Paul has written this letter, each generation has had to wrestle with the question, what will the end of the world look like? What will it be like when Jesus Christ returns? And whether you are a scientist who believes that the universe will freeze in some some cosmological catastrophe or blow up and into bales of fire. What the believer and the unbeliever, quite frankly, agree on is that the world in which we live is going to come to an end. The issue isn't whether or not it's going to end. The issue is how will it end? And so you can imagine that people have always been vulnerable to the apocalyptic alarm clock. Some of you are vulnerable to this alarm clock. You know, some of you woke up this morning going, who thought of the stupid idea of spring ahead? I mean, it's a fiction as if we all go to sleep and we wake up and we pretend an hour is gone. Did the hour really disappear or did it just disappear in your mind? And so a lot of people have that same thought about the end of the world. Some have an image of a clock counting down and we come to that final year and then we come to the final month and we come to the final week and we come to the final hour and we come to the final minute. And so you can imagine. Paul, in this particular letter, understands the angst. And by the way, if you haven't seen the movie 2012, and I haven't seen it, by the way, 
I understand that it captures the angst of a world that's headed for a catastrophe. It seems to me that, you know, when I was growing up, the disaster film was the Poseidon adventure. We would watch, you know, as a ship, it turns over and it begins to sink, and that's the catastrophe. Now, through computer-generated graphics, you can have the San Andreas Fault open and swallow Los Angeles and all of San Francisco. It was Billy Graham who said that if God doesn't judge San Francisco, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. I, I agree. And so you can imagine, Paul understands that there really are two kinds of people. Those who look forward to a hopeless end and those who look forward to an endless hope. People in every generation, like I said, have been vulnerable to urgent warnings, announcements and pronouncements. And in fact, certain false teachers in Paul's day pandered to people's hopes and dreams and fears and insecurities. And Paul's response was an appeal to reason and sound thinking and a careful commitment to what Jesus has already said and revealed to the apostles. Paul is reminding the Thessalonians, I want you to believe the end the way Jesus taught and the way the apostles have taught. And if we look back in the scripture and we look at the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah and Daniel, and then we look forward to the book of Revelation, we can put together a series of events that clearly contain the reality of what God has promised for the future. And so Paul's reason and response to sound thinking and a careful commitment to what the Bible has to say. So he calls for careful and critical thinking based on very specific instructions. As a matter of fact, if you want to know the truth, you have to look at all of what First Thessalonians has already said. And I don't have time to reteach it right now. So you're going to have to go back and look at it. We want with Paul and the other Bible authors to hold fast and stand strong in the traditions that have been given to us. The truth that's revealed in the Bible. We have to suppress the desire to engage in guesswork and speculation. But in the end, we will try to be faithful to represent those events outlined in the scripture. So Paul warns the believer to guard against doomsday prognosticators and judgment day jugglers. The Christian doesn't have to fear the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that becomes the very first principle that you must embrace. I am not afraid of the fact that Jesus Christ is going to return. And we don't have to fall prey to those who announce that Jesus is in the desert or Jesus is in Salt Lake City or Jesus has returned to Brooklyn. And so in verse one, look what it says. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you. So the subject at hand, Paul outlines, it's the coming of the Lord Jesus and our gathering to him. Now, different people have different understandings of the word gathering. In the old King James Version, it says, now we beseech you. And in the new King James Version, it says, we ask you. The original meaning of that particular expression, eroteo. It means in the sense of to suggest a question in ancient Greek writings, particularly in Homer and even in the Septuagint. It was often an expression that was used to make a request or or to extend a request in a humble and in a courteous fashion. And so clearly Paul is trying to address the believers and to correct a misunderstanding and here is the misunderstanding. It is the belief that they were already in the great tribulation. It was the belief that they, that they had already missed the rapture. When I was a young man, newly having accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior, I began to understand what the Bible had to say about the coming of Jesus. As a matter of fact, three weeks after I got saved... I 
I had a birthday. And in my se- that was in my junior year of high school. In my senior year of high school, I joined a commune. Now, a commune was a religious commune. It was a it was a place where people could go. And we got up at six o'clock in the morning and we would listen to Chuck Smith tapes um, at seven o'clock. If you had a job, you went to the job. If you were like me, a student, you went to school. And so I was a senior in high school and living in a commune. And during my senior year living in this commune, I would go to school. I would do my homework. I would do some after school activities and then I would go back to the commune and we would have Bible study and then we would go out and we would evangelize the community that we were living in. And one day as I was coming into the Bible study, there were Bibles open and there were coats and hats and clothes strung everywhere. And I looked around and, I, and the thought entered my mind. It's happened. The raptures happened and I missed it. Just like the Larry Norman song. I've been left behind. And I started shaking again. This sense of dread came over me. And all of a sudden, I heard a bunch of people scream, Surprise! It was a a surprise birthday party. Now, you might be thinking, well, if you really believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, then, you know, how come you were so concerned about you've been left behind. Hey, guess what? I'll bet you there's enough fear and insecurity in each and every one of you that you're constantly sitting there going, am I who I say that I am? Do I really believe the truth about God? Do I really believe the truth about Jesus? The expression, our gathering together, is found only in two places in the Greek New Testament and in here and in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, it's translated, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Or the, the assembling is the gathering, if you will. In Hebrews chapter 10, it's a reference to the local congregation. But here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it's a reference to the whole church. The instance in which every single congregation will be gathered before the Lord to worship him. The expression by my reading seems to be that Paul's previous instructions from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, where Paul talks about that we will be gathered together to meet the Lord in the air. And so the false teaching was the day of the Lord had already come. By the way, the day of Christ in verse 2, where it says not to be soon shaken or in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Some of the earlier manuscripts read, The day of the Lord. And by the way, the day of the Lord is the expression that Paul uses in first Thessalonians. And the day of the Lord was one of those words or expressions in the Hebrew um, compilation of words that had a rich history of of a description. And the day of the Lord isn't just simply a specific day in time and space. You know, we, we think of. The day of computing and we think of the day of the Internet, Um, it speaks to a whole phase, if you will. I know some of you are not even old enough to remember a time when there wasn't an Internet. Some of you are old enough to remember a time when all you could do with a telephone was actually talk on it. Things change radically. And so the false teaching was the day of the Lord or the day of Christ had already come. Some of the believers were under the false impression that Jesus had already come and gone. And you might be thinking, no one would be stupid enough to believe that, right? No, there are people who believe that right now. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus came back. Invisibly in 1914, the preterists believed that he came back invisibly prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. There are people who believe that Jesus has come back 
in consciousness or in connection of some sort. Paul makes it very clear that they're not to believe that nonsense. Are there people who believe that Jesus has already come? Uh, Yes, there are. And so Paul knew that these people needed further instruction to calm their heart and to relieve their fears. And now he focuses on the the confusion in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. Not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word, or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. So what is the apostle requesting? Not to be soon shaken in mind. And by the way, the word means to be agitated. It it was a word that was used to describe when a ship was set at sea, and it was tossed to and fro, and it was thrown off course. And so Paul uses very strong language It's the kind of language that speaks of a sudden jolt. It was a word that you would use to describe an earthquake when it comes where you feel the ground coming right out from underneath you and troubled. That's a word that speaks of an ongoing state of agitation. And so here's the concept. Their fears centered on the idea that the day of the Lord had already come and gone and they missed it. And so we understand something not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled. The word troubled throweo, it means to cause an outcry or, or to cry out loud or to sound the alarm. One Greek scholar Thayer suggests, and I quote, to be troubled in mind, to be frightened, to be alarmed. Um, so, again, here's the million dollar question. And my answer might surprise you. Did Paul teach the Thessalonians that they would, in fact, be raptured and miss the tribulation? Let me tell you why I believe that's exactly what he taught them. The reason why I believe that is exactly what he taught them. Why else would they be shaken in mind? Why else would they be troubled? Why else would they be shocked if they had been taught by Paul? Hey, guess what? A great tribulation's coming. And guess what? You're going to be in it. If they are agitated, shaken and disturbed, it should be. Why are you agitated and shaken and disturbed? I told you that this was going to happen and now it's happening. But I'm going to suggest to you, in fact, That the reason why they're troubled and they're shaken and they're shocked is one of two things has happened. Either they don't believe what Paul has told them. Or number two, that Paul has given them an incomplete amount of information. Or someone has suggested something different. And and the text seems to indicate that that's exactly what's happened. Someone has suggested something different. If they had, in fact, expected to be in the great tribulation, they should have been rejoicing in the fact that they're now seeing the beginning of the end. But remember what Paul has already written in First Thessalonians chapter five, verse nine. For God has not appointed us to wrath but to salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, our appointment with destiny is not to experience the fearful judgment of God, but rather to experience His grace and mercy and blessing and provision because He's given us everything in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, later in Titus chapter 2, verse 12, Paul will write to Titus, Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly. We should live righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're looking for a blessed hope. We're looking for the glorious appearing of Jesus And so Paul lists three possible sources of the misunderstanding by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us. 
In other words, a letter claiming to have apostolic authority, a letter claiming to be from someone who should know better. And by the way, that expression by spirit probably means that someone claimed to have received a special revelation by spirit or by an angel or or some kind of vision. Perhaps even this person said, I have a word from the Holy Spirit that the tribulation has begun. Now, Paul had given instructions to the to the believers to not despise prophecy. As a matter of fact, his letter, he happens to be in Corinth at this very moment while he's writing this very text. And as he's writing them, if he's teaching the Corinthians, don't despise prophecy. Allow people to speak the truth to one another. But also Paul gives instructions that we're not to accept each and every prophecy uncritically or without examination. And so that's part of the point. In other words, just because a person says, I have a word from God, we don't automatically reject it on its face. But we do evaluate it on its face. And if the word is different from what God has already said, what the writer of Genesis has already said, or what the writer of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel have already said, if what has been is being spoken contradicts the character of God or the word of God, then it's to be dismissed. And so Paul says that we're to not take each and every statement uncritically. As a matter of fact, later, John the Apostle will write in First John chapter four, verse one, he will write, you test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. And he'll go on and he'll explain that a spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. And remember what that spirit is. It is a it is a spirit that seeks to seduce you. From what the Bible clearly says. So by spirit or by word, and almost certainly this means some oral communication given by some so-called teacher or prophet. By letter means a posting or a, a communication in written form claiming to have apostolic authority when in fact they don't have apostolic authority. Now, I grew up in a world where sometimes people would misrepresent who they are and what they did. And with the advent of the Internet, is it possible that someone can go on the Internet and pretend to be someone that they're not? The answer is very clear that they can go on and pretend to be someone that they're not. See, some of you might be thinking, who in the world would take the risk of writing a letter and pretending to be an apostle when it could so easily be found out? And so clearly Paul will write and Paul will later write and he'll say, so when you see the expression in the New Testament, see, I'm writing this with my own hand so that you'll know that it's really coming from me. And so Paul gives instructions to reject the different teaching as though Christ or as though the day of Christ had come. The revised version is even better as that the day of the Lord is now present. So think of it. They were afraid that the day of God's wrath had begun. And Paul is writing, don't be fooled. By the way, just in my own lifetime, there have been eleven hundred religious leaders in different parts of the world who have claimed to be Christ or Savior in India, in Africa, in China. Before I even became a Christian in November of 1970, there was a then 12 year old boy named Guru Maharaji. He stood up and on national television made this pledge. I declare that I will establish peace in this world. That was in 1970. So how do you think he's doing with that pledge in 1980 and 1990 in the year 2000 and in 2010? And where is this guy? I think he's now making movies. I think he's probably one of the slumdog millionaire producers now. 
1973, thousands of people gathered in Houston for a Save the World Festival with the Guru Maharaji. In 1975, F.W. Franz, leader of the then Jehovah's Witnesses, calculated that September 1975 would usher in the day of Armageddon. And then he recalculated the date when the day didn't come. She says, oh, that's because I didn't figure in the time that Adam took to name the animals for God and to create Eve. And so he amended the chronology and was wrong again. In every generation, there will be people who will tell you 1978, 1982. And in 88 reasons, there was a guy named Edgar Wisenot. His name tells it all. Wisenot. 88 reasons why Jesus will come in 1988. And when Jesus doesn't come, he writes an amended version. 89 reasons why Jesus will come in 89. And so. He says, as though the day of Christ or the day of the Lord had already come. Now, you've heard me recommend a website called gotquestions.org. And they have a great little entry. And so what I'm about to say, you can find it at gotquestions.org. And it says, what is the difference between the rapture and the second coming? And I like their short summary. They write and I say, and I quote, the rapture and the second coming of Christ are often confused. Sometimes it's difficult to determine whether a scripture verse is referring to the rapture or the second coming. However, in studying end times Bible prophecy, it's very important to differentiate between the two. The rapture is when Jesus Christ returns to remove the church. That's all believers in Christ. The rapture is described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 54. Believers who have died will have their bodies resurrected, and along with believers who are still living will meet the Lord in the air. This will occur in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye. Do you know how fast the twinkling of an eye is? It's the amount of time that it takes for light to reflect from the surface of your eye. Someone did a study that you blink, it, when you blink, it's one one thousandth of a second. Now, someone did the math. They said, imagine that you're driving at 55 miles an hour for 10 hours straight. Technically, you've had your eyes closed for 32 miles. But see, what you've got to understand is your, your eyes aren't closed like for 32 miles in a row, is it? You know, when you stretch it out over 10 hours. But I digress here. We're back to gotquestions.org. He writes. The important differences between the rapture and the second coming are as follows. Number one, at the rapture, believers meet the Lord in the air. That's First Thessalonians 4.17. At the second coming, believers return with the Lord to the earth. That's Revelation 19.14. The second coming occurs after a great and terrible tribulation. That's Revelation 6, chapter 6 through 19. The rapture occurs before the tribulation. That's First Thessalonians chapter five, verse nine, Revelation chapter three, verse ten. And you can put down Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses one through three. The rapture is the removal of believers from the earth as an act of deliverance. First Thessalonians four thirteen. The second coming includes the removal of unbelievers as an act of judgment. That's Matthew twenty four verses forty through forty one. The rapture will be secret and instant. First Corinthians fifteen fifty. The second coming will be visible to all. That's Revelation chapter one verse seventeen. Matthew chapter twenty four twenty nine. And I think of First John chapter three verses one through three. The second coming of Christ will not occur until after certain other end time events take place. Second Thessalonians chapter two verse four. The coming of an antichrist. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Revelation chapter 16 through 18. The rapture is imminent. That means it's the next thing on God's prophetic timetable. It could take place at any moment. <clears throat> That's Titus 2.13. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. 1 Corinthians 15.50-54. Now some people think, well, how can you say that? I want to remind you of something. Remember when Jesus came the first time, 
He was born of a virgin. He lives a perfect life for 33 years. He dies on a cross. He's resurrected from the dead. And from the time of his resurrection to the time of his ascension into heaven, he's here for 40 days, right? Now, during that 40-day period, is Jesus present on the planet? Yes. Is he present and available to anyone who wants to see him? No. According to the indications in the New Testament, he is present. He appears to his disciples. He does whatever it is that Jesus does during those specific times. And then during the time when he ascends into heaven, the Bible says he ascends into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the father. And an angel in Acts chapter one says, why do you stand here looking up into heaven? That same Jesus who you saw disappear, that is bodily, physically, specifically in time and space that you will see him return. Remember, remember, remember. Well, let's go to the next verse in verse three. Look, look what it says in verse three. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now, I want you to think about where we've come from. In first Thessalonians, the believers were in danger. And why were they in danger? They were in danger because they were losing hope. And why were they losing hope? Because they didn't have a clear understanding of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, an equal and opposite danger faces the church. It's the false belief that the second coming has already happened and they missed it. And so Paul writes, let no one deceive you by any means. What, what are you saying? That is, don't be shaken, don't be troubled, don't be deceived. And I'm going to suggest to you that the shaking and the trouble and the deception is based on the truth about the rapture or about what people falsely embrace concerning the rapture. Jesus is coming. That's the blessed hope. Don't let anyone take this from you, either by spirit, a supposed gift of prophecy, by word, I'm going to suggest argument, or by letter, as if from us. That is, people pretending to understand things that they, in fact, don't understand at all. So Paul seeks to correct or explain why they couldn't possibly be in the day of the Lord. That time when God pours out his wrath on a world that rejects him. And so certain events must precede that great day of judgment. After the rapture, these events must take place. Now, I want you to understand something. Certain signs would be present. If, in fact, the day had already come, Paul doesn't focus on the events leading up to the rapture, but rather on the events that lead up to that day, the day of judgment. And he says, the falling away comes first. It's two simple words in the original language. Hey, apostasia. The word has a definite article. The apostasia is the noun form of a word which simply meant the departure or to depart. And so, again, to understand the word, the departure, we have to understand it. In its literal sense and in its in the sense in which it's given in our text. Now, the noun form only appears right here in this verse and one other place in Acts chapter 21, verse 21. In Acts chapter 21, verse 21, it says, but they have been informed about you. Speaking of Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. The word to forsake is the word translated this word, hey, apostasia, in Acts chapter 21, verse 21. And so clearly, in that particular sense, when it's used, it's the, it's the accusation that Paul was teaching the Jewish believers to forsake the law or for, to forsake the teachings of Moses. Did Paul do that? No. 
He didn't tell them to forsake the teaching of Moses, but rather that the, that the teaching of Moses finds its full and final fruition in the grace and the mercy that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. The law came by Moses, remember John Rudd? But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And so, to forsake in this particular sense meant a defection or an apostasy. Again, there's the clear, simple word departure. Could it mean that? Quite possibly. There seems to be a lot of linguistic evidence for it. Does it mean defection or apostasy in the sense in which it was used in the first century? This is a revolt that springs from within rather than from without. In other words, this revolt is coming from either apostate Jews or apostate Christians. But when we use that word apostasy, we mean to fall away from, to forsake or to depart from something that you already hold dear. And so... In the ancient world, it was used to describe a military revolt. Remember, the purpose of a military is to make sure that the government is intact. The military's job is to protect and provide for its citizens. What happens in a government when the military revolts? The citizens are left defenseless. And so here, the issue meant to explode or collapse or implode from the inside out. By the way, it's one thing for the church to be attacked by atheists and skeptics and critics and unbelievers. But what do you do when the attack comes from within the church? What do you do when the seminary trained pastors tell you that the Bible isn't true and that Jesus isn't Lord and that salvation isn't real? It becomes a kind of theological AIDS virus where you know what the AIDS virus does, what the AIDS virus is. It's a mutation in your body. You have an immune system and your immune system is supposed to protect you from all of the things that come from the outside to try and make you sick. What happens when your own immune system turns against itself and refuses to attack the invader? But itself becomes the very mechanism of attack. Some people have interpreted this rebellion as a rebellion against God by what looks like the church. Some have interpreted it to mean a wholesale departure from the truth, the gospel. And again, the debate among Bible scholars is what will this look like? What will a global apostasy look like? Will it be a wholesale abandonment of any and all religions? Will it be a global denial of a supernatural being that's represented in the Bible? Will it be an outright denial of the existence of God and the exaltation of man? What will it be? Does this apostasy refer to a falling away by people who claim to be followers of God? Or will this be a general worldwide rebellion? And some would argue that Paul includes elements of both groups in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul paints a picture of a world gone mad that separates itself from the true and living God and the attributes of God and the moral character of God. The Bible describes this as having happened and continuing to happen and will also continue to happen. And so how are we to think about this? Whatever it is, it prepares the world for what Daniel called the little horn in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. He also called this person the willful king in Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. Paul calls him the man of sin in verse 3, the son of perdition in verse 3, the wicked one in verse 8. The apostle John calls him the beast in Revelation chapter 11, verse 7, which speaks not of a human quality, but whatever it means to be a human made in the image of God, he's completely detached from it. And the presence of the definite article makes the departure or the falling away 
the falling away. In other words, there seems to be this ultimate rebellion. We know that the Bible says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But yet, what do we make of Jesus' statement in Luke chapter 18, verse 18, when he says to his own disciples, when the Son of Man comes to the earth, will he find faith? And some, like I said, have interpreted the verse to mean departure in the sense of a rapture. But whenever I think about departure, it usually falls into one of two categories. Willful. And unwillful. Where you want to go. And where you don't have a choice whether you get to go. So which is it? Will there be a great revival that signals the end of the days? Or will there be a great apostasy that signals the end of the days? Well, apparently there can be both. Because in Revelation chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, and in Revelation chapter 17, verses 2 through 6, we see a great falling away. But in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we see a great acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Paul points out that that day, that day, that day cannot be identified with certainty until a particular person known as the man of sin is revealed. Again, Paul's point couldn't be more clear. You're upset. You're afraid. You're agitated. You're buying guns, gold and groceries and buying property in Idaho. But don't be upset. Don't be afraid. You think you've missed the rapture and now you think that you've entered into the tribulation period, but that can't be true because the man of sin has not yet been revealed. By the way, David Busick points out that the one historical interpretation by the church um, has been that the man of sin is, in fact, not a man at all or not even an individual, but a religious system or a religious office. Protestant interpreters thought that it may refer to a succession of popes. Calvin represented that kind of thinking. He wrote, Paul, however, is not speaking of an individual, but of a kingdom that was seized by Satan for the purpose of setting up a seat of abomination in the midst of God's temple. This we see accomplished in popery. With all due respect to John Calvin, you know what the first principle of hermeneutics, the biblical art of science, the, the science of biblical interpretation is? The first rule is the text can never mean what it never meant. The text can never mean what it never meant. So what does Paul have in mind? What is Paul really saying to the Thessalonians? What if the meaning is the very simple, plain meaning that Paul presents that a person, a wicked person, a satanic person, an evil person will come at the end of days, at the end of human history? The world has known a lot of savage, wicked rulers who have perpetrated untold grief on human beings. So what's different about this person? In my radio program this last week, a person called me and asked the question, do you think that Barack Obama is the Antichrist? And I said, if he is, I am so completely disappointed in what the Bible has to say about the Antichrist. What do you mean? Well, the Bible describes him as an intellectual genius in Daniel chapter 8, verse 23. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, he's described as an oratorical genius. Does this sound like a person who needs a teleprompter in order to read his speech? In Revelation chapter 17, verse 11, he's described as a political genius. Does this describe a president who can't get through his own health care initiative? In Daniel chapter 11, verse 43, in Revelation 13, 6, he's described as a commercial genius. In other words, this person has such a keen understanding of the human condition and economics that he's going to thrust the world into a time of unparalleled prosperity. John describes him as a person. 
Jesus even says in John chapter 5, verse 43, describing him as the one who comes in his own name with his own birth certificate. No, that doesn't say that in the text. I just made that up. I just made that up. But it does say he comes in John chapter 43, the one who comes in his own name. Whoever he is. And whatever he is, speculations run rampant in every generation. But you know what Paul does? He links two important things that you don't want to miss. He describes him as the man of sin. And he describes him as the son of perdition. Now, you you might note that carefully. Paul begins by giving a description of his character. He is the man of sin. He is the lawless one, the one who is the sum and the substance. He is the embodiment of sin. And then Paul gives us a hint to this man's destiny. He is the son of perdition. One speaks of his character and the other speaks of his destiny. And this becomes an important principle that each and every one of you should embrace right now. And that is character determines destiny. Think about this for just a moment. The reason why this becomes maybe one of the most important things that I've said so far Your character determines your destiny. There's a reason why the satanic Superman brings his own law and apostasy in the church and lawlessness in the land. Apoleas. It's a verb. Apolumi, which means to perish. Ho, huos, opoloias, the son of perdition. It literally means the perishing one. It literally means the lost one. It can mean the son of destruction. The way that I would think about it is this. He is the hopeless one who will perish. That's the idea. The best translation, I think, is the son of the perishing one or the son of destruction. What does it mean? Again, in the Hebrew language and in the Hebrew culture, it was a designation that belonged to a person or or a thing that was destined for ruination, opposed to something that was just simply being set aside to be rescued or saved. Pay close attention. This Name is the exact name given to one other person in the Bible. Who remembers? Go ahead. You can say it. Pretend it's the Pentecostal church and you can talk to me. <laughs> Judas. That's right. Judas is Iscariot in John seventeen twelve. He's described as the son of perdition. You know what the Antichrist and Judas have in common? They both are hopelessly lost. Hopelessly lost. You see, this is why character becomes such an important part of the identity of where you're going. Niels Bohr, the famous Danish physicist, sounding more like Yogi Berra than a Danish physicist, said, Prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. Yeah, you probably thought, I don't need a Ph.D. in physics to be able to say something like that. Prediction is very difficult, especially about the future, but make no mistake about it. There's a reoccurring theme in the Bible. Jesus will return. For every prophecy on the first coming of Jesus, there are eight prophecies about the second coming of Jesus. Paul tells us that Jesus will return personally in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Literally and visibly in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. He will come in glory, Matthew 16.27. He will come in power with angels unexpectedly. It was Orison Martin who wrote, There is no medicine like hope. There's no incentive so great, no tonic so powerful as expectation of something better tomorrow. John Wesley White says, the world hopes for the best, but Jesus Christ offers the best hope. My granny used to say, 
No patient should have to leave the hospital until they're ready to face the cashier. What do you do? If you have a bill so great that even you can't pay it. Jesus paid the debt. Jesus paid the sin debt so that you wouldn't have a hopeless end. But rather so that you could have an endless hope. But remember, character determines destiny. Who you are fundamentally on the inside will determine where you go forever. Who are you? What are you? Are you a son of sin and the son of perdition? Are you a child of God who's been changed and transformed by the grace of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? See, now all of a sudden it makes perfect sense. It is the son of God. It is the savior who changes us from the inside and gives us a new heart. And a new start. A new character. And a new destiny. An endless hope. It exists for every person who knows and loves Jesus. A hopeless end. It exists. And it continues to exist. For the person who has only one future to look forward to. The day Jesus shows up to judge him or her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know, we know, we know, we know that the world really is divided between those two deep divides. Those who have hope and those who need hope. Those who have hope in Christ and those who need hope in Christ. And for the person who needs hope, Lord, I pray that you would extend your invitation of love and mercy, forgiveness and grace to that heart. Lord, I pray that they would be able to face the future. Knowing that their future is occupied by a person who lives forever. Lord, we're thrilled that we can live forever because we can love forever. Because we know that you live forever. And we know that we can love you forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.